0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Carrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. We actually finally made it through chapter 22. And now in Luke chapter 23, we're going to be looking at the first 25 verses. We're going to take off some big chunks now as we make our way. The title is, Each One Plays His Part. Each one plays his part. All the world's a stage, and all the women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. So begins the monologue from William William Shakespeare's play, As You Like It. The speech compares the world to a stage and life to a play, and is one of Shakespeare's most frequent quoted passages. In his work, The Praise of Folly, first printed in 1511, Renaissance humanist Erasmus asks, For what else is the life of man but a kind of play? in which men in various costumes perform until the director motions them off the stage. Years ago, not too many years ago, but there was another type of movie, The Matrix, which trying to make the same kind of point that we're all just point a point, part of simulations and things of that nature. How many of you have ever been in a play or acted in a play, a skit, things of that nature? Did it when you are young? Most people want, uh, who do want the biggest, they want the biggest and juiciest part. They want to be the star. They can become bitter if their part is too small, yet one acting coach said that there's no small parts, only small actors. Yet we all enjoy and desire the spotlight. We all want our time in the spotlight. Today, we're continuing Luke's record of the passion drama as it unfolds there in Jerusalem. So far, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been accused. He's been beaten, spit on, and condemned by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. The Holy Spirit informs us that all of this was so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The play is unfolding as the author has scripted it. Peter preaches that after Jesus ascended to heaven, that these events were all part of God's redemption plan. In Acts chapter 4, we read it here, I believe, on the monitor. For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All of this is part of God's plan. All of these men, speaking of Pilate and Herod, the Gentiles, the the religious leaders, even Judas, are just mere actors that are playing their part in God's cosmic plan of redemption to redeem man. Today, we're going to put that spotlight on four actors. Last week we read the final hours of Jesus' ministry on earth have arrived as he's betrayed, arrested, abandoned by his closest companions. The hour of darkness has arrived as the passion of Christ begins with an illegal trial that had no pretension of being fair or seeking justice. It truly was a kangaroo court. Jesus is declared guilty of blasphemy with the religious leaders seeking to put him to death. So, Father, as we come to today's passage, continue to open our minds and hearts to a story that's familiar to many of us. However, we want to take the familiarity out so that we can see it anew and see it fresh and see the spiritual truths that are being taught here, how we can find promises, how we can find commitment. Father, how we can find what you have called us expected us and what will be judged and evaluated one day. Open our minds and hearts. Lord, may have free reign, and may you be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, the first spotlight in Luke chapter 23 is found in the first five verses, and it's going to be on a man named Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying... We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Galilee from, uh, Judea, from Galilee even. To this place. The MacArthur Study Bible notes that this occurred around daybreak between 5 and 6, 7 a.m. Having illegally decided Jesus' guilt during the night, the Sanhedrin now finally conveyed after daybreak to pronounce sentence, and we saw that last week. But the Jewish council, as you might recall, could not actually put him to death they could pronounce the death penalty on him but they could not carry out the sentence so they had to convince Pontius Pilate to do so for them however blasphemy was not a cause for the death penalty in Rome Rome had many gods you could say there were many gods so they accused Jesus of proclaiming himself to be a king which would put him at odds at Rome now, there's three false accusations you might have saw here that didn't even arise in Jesus' trial. They state that Jesus is a troublemaker. He's a social agitator. He's a liar. And not only that, he's a tax evader, proclaiming to be the rightful king, which would have been the worst of the offenses. Now, Pilate, as many of you know, was a regional governor of the Jewish providence, He represented the interests of Caesar in Rome. Now, remember, Caesar at this time many believed he was a god. The Jewish historian Josephus Josephus, writes that Pilate was a headstrong, strict, authoritarian Roman leader who, although was both rational and practical, never knew how far he should go in any given case. He was a man who many times did not know the correct boundaries. A Roman trial was very similar to what you and I think of today. It consists of an accusation against a person, his defense, and then the verdict. Yet Jesus, just as he did before the high council, remains silent and gives no defense, even though he recognizes, and probably everyone there around him recognizes, that the charges are manipulated and contrived. How would you react, I would ask to such false accusations, especially if it carried out a death sentence. We would scream our innocence. Probably the guilty themselves would also scream that we are innocent. We would vehemently pronounce the injustice of the trial and the falsehood of the charges, yet Jesus is silent. All he does is respond, You have said so. It's not a sterling defense but similar to our exasperated cry of, if you say so, during an argument. Whatever you say. But there's just silence. Could you imagine, as we're looking at this spotlight, at this scene here before Pilate, you can imagine the bewilderment of Pilate and the surrounding crowd as these accusations that are truly fabricated, and there's not a word of defense from Jesus. They would have been expecting the, uh, the usual cry of, guil- of not guilty and, and, and the defense of the accused, but there's just silence. Beaten by the Jewish soldier, soldiers, he's bruised, he's bloodied by their fists, but yet he does not cry out. The psalmist writes, "Blesses the man against whom God the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. This is a man which has no deceit in his heart. There is no sin. Jesus is the only man who could claim this. He was perfectly obedient to the whole law. Isaiah the prophet writes that there was no deceit in his mouth. The apostle Peter would later agree when he testified that Jesus did not sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. This here is a fulfillment of what we read earlier in Isaiah 53, 7, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Pilate, though, throws the religious leaders a curveball when he decides that Jesus is innocent of all charges and is prone to release him. They thought for sure this was a done deal. However, Pilate is not ready to go along with their shenanigans. This causes an uproar among Jesus' accusers as they double down on on on, on more accusations against him. We then turn the spotlight to our second character in this drama, and that's on King Herod. Look at verse 6. And when Pilate heard this, that he was from Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was himself at that time in Jerusalem. Again, that's not where his usual place is, but he just happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and he was hoping to, to see some sign done by him. He had heard all of the miracles, the wondrous deeds. In verse 9, so he questioned Jesus at some length. But again, we see that Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accused him all during that time. as, As he's saying nothing, as Herod is asking, these accusations are just coming rapid fire against him. Verse 11, and Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Herod Antipas, he was the man who put John the Baptist to death to appease his wife and stepdaughter. All he desires is entertainment. He just wants to be entertained. He wants to see some sign. He wants to see some miracle. He wants to be amazed and astounded. He has no desire to inquire about the true identity of Jesus Christ. He had no desire to understand who Jesus was. He had no interest in justice. He could care less what happened to Jesus as long as he could witness a spectacle. Jesus, knowing exactly the state of Herod's mind, remains, once again, silent. Dr. Schreiner notes that Jesus' silence also shows that he's a silent servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, 7. Herod is part of an evil generation that wants to see a sign or wonder, but Jesus does not work miracles for amusement. He is not some type of charlatan. He is not some type of carnival barker. He has nothing to say to someone who is truly not seeking the Lord, as is evident. In the case of Herod, he knows exactly who Herod is, and he is not going to play the games for him. However, Herod does take his pound of flesh as he also orders his soldiers now to mistreat an innocent man whose hands are bound with no opportunity to defend himself. For the second time, Jesus undergoes a beating for the amusement and cruelty of others. Herod is unaware that the young child who escaped his father's murderous intent 30 years ago now stands before him. Herod's spiritual blindness keeps him from seeing the true king of Israel standing before him, yet to mock him he dresses him in the clothing of a king or in the colors of a king and sends him out For his own entertainment and spectacle. Finally, becoming bored with his vicious and cruel games, he sends Jesus back to Pilate. Look with me at verse twelve. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been an enmity with each other. This incident causes them, leads them to put down their barriers, their animosity, and become friends. Here we see one example of the fulfillment of Psalms 2.2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The third spotlight moves back to Pilate, As he confronts the crowd in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to him, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him neither did herod for he sent him back to us look nothing deserving death has been done by this man he's trying to plead with them he's trying to reason look at there's no reason to put this man to death is there not any other way therefore i will just punish him and release him Pilate is looking for a way out he wants no part in this drama He knows that he is being manipulated by these religious leaders. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read that even Pilate's wife warned him to stay away and not to get involved with this scenario, this scene, with this this crowd. But to satisfy the crowd, he offers to punish Jesus, even though he had just stated that he found Jesus innocent. But in the end, he would release him. He will not sentence him to death. The religious leaders in the crowds are not satisfied. They want a pound of flesh. They want blood. They want Jesus dead. So now the fourth spotlight here in Luke is now moved over. And now it becomes on the unruly crowd and a criminal named Barabbas. Look at verse 18. But they all cried out together away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder (laughs) this is not a good man look at verse 20 Pilate addressed them once more desiring to release Jesus but they kept shouting crucify him, crucify him verse 22 the third time he said to them why, what evil has he done I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will just therefore punish him and release him. But to no avail, as we read in verse twenty-three. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified. And here's the sad thing: four of our words, and their voices prevailed. Finally. Pilate had reached the breaking point. His resistance fell. So Pilate, in verse 24, decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man, Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate was not prom- prompted by, was prompted not by a desire for justice, but because of his political and moral cowardness and fear of the mob. He knew Jesus was innocent, yet he wanted to satisfy the crowd. History tells us, <coughs> excuse me, that Pilate had irritated the Jewish population with many of his actions. He now saw this as an opportunity to get on their good side. He's making a political decision, not a one of justice, not a one of criminal or righteous one. So he tries to give them a trump card. Let's give the Jews a choice. Let's choose Barabbas. Barabbas, one who is an insurrectionist and one who is a a robber, a murderer, a rebel. Or you can have a teacher and a healer. What choice should that be? We should always take the innocent over the guilty. However, the religious leaders incited this crowd to choose a known criminal instead of one who had done no wrong and done no harm, done no crime. Their desire for power and the fear of Jesus' influence among the people led them to a murderous rage. Now, you might be like me and say, wait a second. Wasn't it just three, four days ago the crowd was saying Jesus, King of David? Weren't they just uh, Palm Sunday as we think of it? But you and I must understand this most likely was a different crowd than those who were worshiping Jesus several days earlier. And what you and I call or refer to as Palm Sunday. Remember, Palm Sunday, was the Jews were moving with Jesus from Galilee and they were traveling with him for the day of, of Passover. But it also was filled with others. There's millions of people probably this time near Jerusalem at this time, hundreds of thousands of people there for Passover from all over the Roman Empire. So this crowd here probably consisted of the minions of the religious leaders and visitors to Jerusalem who did not fully understand or know who Jesus was and his teachings, and his miracles. They never saw him. They never heard him. All they know is that the religious leaders are telling them that this is a bad man. Though he declared himself to be innocent, Pilate will be judged for his decisions and actions. There is no washing his hands in this drama. This here is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.8. I believe it might be here on the monitor Maybe not, but oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? He was considered a criminal, considered one who was full of sin. This is God's plan for Jesus, as the prophet Isaiah writes, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for their guilt. Pilate thinks that he's turning Jesus over to the will of the crowd and the religious leaders, and he is. But the primary cause is that of the Yahweh who desires to crush Jesus so his soul may make an offering for guilt. This crowd did not even understand that their bloodless... Bloodlust, excuse me, served God's plan for salvation and reconciliation. (coughs) Excuse me. So as we look at the spotlight here, the drama that's unfolding here, the role of the religious leaders was their envy to incite them to seek the death of Christ. The role of the crowd was to reject Jesus at all costs. The role of Pilate was to unjustly condemn Jesus to the cross. Each and every one of these actors played their part perfectly, just as it was written for them, but also just as they had chose in their own hearts. Once again, we see the sovereignty of God and human responsibility working together for the most horrible crime and the worst sin ever committed the killing of the Son of God. Now, there are several things I want to consider. There's several truths that were spotlighted for us this morning that I want us to consider. First, <clears throat> excuse me, I coughed this morning. First, just as Jesus faced false witnesses and accusations, you and I should not be surprised when we, too, suffer the same fate. From the apostles onward, Christians have faced false accusations that have led to severe punishments, ridicule, mockery, and even death. The Holy Spirit has warned us in Scripture, John chapter 15. Jesus warned his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are the world, the world would love you as its own. They loved Barabbas. Why? Because he was evil. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if they kept my word they will also keep yours but all these things that they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know me or know him who sent me second timothy warns us indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted We will have false accusations. We will have misconceptions. We will have those who will seek to ridicule, to mock us, to harm us because they hate the Father. Jesus informs us that this is not because they hate us but because they hate him and they hate the Father. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of all men and women. They do not recognize or submit to the Father as a Son. The Bible tells us that their minds are hostile to God, full of hatred and envy. There is no reasoning with them. So you and I must understand that just as he faced it in silence, you and I, too, are called to face them. But this leads us to the second truth, that men love darkness rather than light. Evil attracts evil. Jesus taught us in John chapter 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. That's the truth. Why? Because their works were evil. For anyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to light, that his works should be exposed. It's kind of interesting if you were to take someone who's addicted to drugs, and one of the things you say, you know, you need to move him out of his environment, you need to move him away from his friends, from his dealer, so on and so forth. You can do that and take that person out of it. You could take them to the other side of the United States and put him in a different city, and you can guarantee what would happen—probably within two, three days—they'd find the exact same crowd and type of friends. Pilate and Herod becomes friends because of their evil actions, because of the darkness. At first they were at an with each other. They did not like each other. They they maybe fought with each other. There was some type of uh, uh, competition, something going on within there. But yet they were able to coalesce because of their judgment and ridicule of Jesus Christ. They lived out that mantra, "The enemy of my enemy is my friend." They recognized that both of them were not friends with the religious leaders. The religious leaders did not like Pilate. they did not like Herod. The people did not like Pilate and they did not like Herod. Herod himself was, even though he was the king of the Jews, was not accepted by the Jews or the religious leaders as the kings. So they saw that their way was to use their evil hearts and minds to placate the crowd. Paul warns that bad company ruins good morals. And many of us have understood this. We've lived this out. We may have the scars ourselves. This is a warning for us, this spiritual truth. This is a warning for us to watch who we choose to befriend. And seek counsel from. Unfortunately there are too many. Who profess Christ. Who are attracted to those. Who look for entertainment. And looking to satisfy themselves. Rather than those who are godly. We must be careful. Of this. For it has led to many downfall. 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 Now I can't say it. You got it. Downfall. Here's a note to parents. This is editorial. This is free. Parents, choose your children's friends. Don't let them choose it. And let me add another one. Parents, choose your children's friends wisely. You say, but yeah, but I protect my child. I don't let them watch this. I don't let him do this. I don't let him do that. But then you let them go play with people whose parents do, who parents may not be involved in their life who may not have the same uh, uh, desires and characteristics as you have. The third truth is that envy is a powerful emotion that will drive people to the brink of terrible sin and things. King Solomon warns us in Proverbs 14.30 that the tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but Envy makes the bones rot. There's a book that just came out by Pastor um, Michael uh, Fabrizi. I'm not saying his name correctly. Forgive me. Uh, He's never going to see this, so it doesn't matter. But forgive me for saying it. He's down in uh, Elisa Vejo. He wrote a book that just came out. um, Envy, the one sin you didn't realize you had. And that's true. It's covetousness. That's what Paul says. I was perfect before the law until I re- recognized that I had covetousness, the 10th commandment. Covetousness really is, the, is almost the seed of each and every sin. It's desiring. It's, it's jealousy. It's envy. It's saying that God owes me. That's what envy and jealousy is. It says God owes me. <laughs> Excuse me. He gave something to this person. He gave something to that person. And I don't have it and I deserve it. Just a few days earlier, Jesus had condemned the religious leaders who were full of envy and jealousy. Remember, that's the only reason why they're doing this, of envy and jealousy. Just a few days earlier, Jesus had condemned the Pharisees when he pronounced, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all all uncleanliness. Envy makes the bones rot. And these religious leaders, these, this crowd crying for the blood of Jesus Christ, for the man, for the innocent blood, their hearts are filled with envy. And you and I need to look at That's one of the things the Bible tells us to, to mortify, to kill. And you need to look, probably envy is probably many of the things that, are, that is fueling the sins that you struggle with a desire for that which God has not given you. Turn to Titus chapter 3, if you would, please. You and I must not let envy have a foothold in our minds and in our hearts. Scripture tells us that we too were once slaves to the devices of envy and jealousy. In Titus chapter 3, 3-7. through seven. Paul writes in Titus 3:3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedience led astray. We were like the religious leaders, we were like the crowds, we were like Pilate and like Herod. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, looking for entertainment, hated by others and hating one another. Envy led these religious leaders to kill the Son of God. They knew that he was someone special. Whether they understood exactly who Jesus was may be debated, but they knew that he was from God. They knew that. They knew his teaching and miracles were from an almighty Father. Yet they still led the crowd to call for his death. Yet even their envy... Even their very action accomplished the very purpose of God. Continuing in Titus chapter 3, look at verse 4. But with the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Even in the sin that you and I are seeing that is spotlighted by by Pilate, by Herod, by by the Jews, by the crowds, and by the religious leader, their sin led to our salvation. And because of that, Peter commands us to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. Like newborn infants, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk that by it we may grow up into the salvation he has given us. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So yes, these actors are playing a a role that is going to cause the death of an innocent one. But yet without it, we would have no hope. Their sin leads to our hope. The fourth truth and last truth is that the Father's plan of redemption required the innocent for the guilty. Jesus was innocent of all the accusations against him. Barabbas was guilty of the very crimes that Jesus was accused of. He was the troublemaker. He was the social agitator. He was the tax evader. He was the one who was rebellious. He was the one who demanded that he was king or at least that he was someone who was wanting to throw Caesar from the throne. Yet they release the guilty and condemn the innocent. This truth was magnified in the Old Testament sacrificial system where an innocent lamb would be slaughtered for the sins of the people. Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. He's offered up for our sins, our guilt to cover our shape. The innocent for the guilty. Though we are repulsed by the actions of the religious leaders, Pilate, Herod, and the crowd, our only hope is found in this truth, the innocent for the guilty. Jesus provided what the Father required, a perfect substitute sacrifice. And just as a sad note, as I consider Jesus' silence, during all the accusations, one thing that came to my mind during the last few nights is they are accusing Jesus of all these sins falsely, knowing that he is innocent. There's no deceit in his mouth. He knowing that he would drink the cup of wrath for my sin. He was silent because he knew that he was going to bear the weight of my sin. See, when you and I stand before God, there is no excuse that we have for our sin. There is no excuse. We cannot reason it away. We cannot try to say, but there's extenuating circumstances. I believe the only proper response is silence. So Jesus is silent, knowing that he was going to willingly, voluntarily take upon himself the Simonas. He had no excuse. He could reclaim his innocence. But he is silenced for our behalf. Jesus lives out his own teachings and commands. Turn quickly, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at two other passages of scriptures and I'll close. Because now I want to know how do you know you and I go from here? <clears throat> How do we live with these spiritual truths? How do we live out the example of Christ? Well, Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 43. Jesus, teaching his disciples, says, You have heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your Father, Heavenly Father, is perfect. Even in this perversion of human justice, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He was perfect. Obeying the Father to the end. Their actions are deplorable. Their motivation is sinful. Their hearts are corrupt, just as all of ours is as well. It was all of our sin that led Jesus to bear this reproach. So let us be grateful for the one who was innocent, yet willingly offered himself, self, himself up for the guilty. And may we now love our neighbor, love our enemy. Pray for those who persecute us. Even in the midst of false accusations, may we praise and glorify the one who stood in our stead. And then lastly, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Knowing these truths and following the example of Christ, you and I need to prepare ourselves to endure the sin and the suffering that we're going to face, or any and all suffering I should say that we may face. We do this by loving our enemies. We do this by praying for those who persecute us, those who cancel us, trusting that Jesus will one day come and rule in righteousness, bringing justice and enduring peace. But until that day, let us live lives that reflect the example of Christ. Peter writes in his first letter, stating in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He understands. Jesus already warned them as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed that day when he comes. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed. Because the spirit of glory and God rest upon you. But he goes on, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian because of Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if this righteous is scarcely saved, well shall we come of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. That's the example of Christ, who willingly suffered to do good for the glory of God and for those that all that God would redeem. May the Trinity Speaking of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grant us more faith to trust in him and more grace to endure the race that's set before us for his glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Their head bowed and their eyes closed. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Randy to make his way up as well for pastor's prayer. Again, my exhortation is the same as it always is. Let's take a moment to just pause to consider the example of Christ, the truths that we learned this morning, and then pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom to discern how we are to respond to these truths. You and I are not going to stand before Pilate or Herod. We're not standing for a crowd or religious leaders who are asking for us to be condemned. Though I would say more and more that is happening in this world. I just think of Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker. He is being accused and maligned for believing and doing things that Christians think and believe. But we need to stand firm before it's the glory of Christ. May we glorify him in all that we do and may we stand as Christ did in our place. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message.